This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Once Upon a Crime. This is part two of a two-part series, The Twelve Crimes of Christmas, The Murder of Lacey Peterson. Yesterday I released part one, in which I and my co-host Yolanda Norris from the Not Perfect or Functional podcast began the discussion of the disappearance of Lacey Peterson from Modesto, California on Christmas Eve 2002. We went over a summary of the case, the suspicions the police had from the beginning that caused them to consider her husband Scott as a suspect, and the timeline of the case. We also debunked some of the assertions that participants on the A&E series The Murder of Lacey Peterson made that pointed to Scott's innocence. If you have not yet listened to part one, you're going to want to do that first before listening to the latest episode. We'll pick it up from there. As we continue, we'll discuss some of the theories as to why this murder occurred. As well, we will provide some details of Scott Peterson's background and do a psychological study into why we think he decided to take the lives of his wife, Lacey, and their unborn son, Connor. This episode is also ad-free. Merry Christmas! Instead, I will just be sharing with you a few more of my podcaster friends' holiday greetings. I hope you will enjoy this special episode. So get comfy, grab a hot toddy or another glass of holiday cheer, and let's continue our discussion. Before we begin, I want to bring up one point of evidence that we didn't elaborate on last time, but it was a big part of the prosecution's case. That is the observation of the homemade anchor that investigators found in Scott Peterson's warehouse. Only one anchor was found, but police believed that there was evidence that five anchors had been made. They theorized then that four anchors had been used to weigh down Lacey's body in the bay. Five circular areas of powder material were found on the wooden bed of Scott's boat trailer. One anchor was accounted for. A search was conducted for the other four, but never found. Scott insisted he'd only made one anchor. Scott told police that he used a 90-pound bag of concrete to make the anchor in his boat. When asked what happened to the rest of the bag of material, he said he used it for a repair job on the driveway at his house. However, prosecutors had an expert do an analysis of the material found in the homemade anchor and the material found in the driveway. The chunks of powder found in Peterson's warehouse, truck bed, boat, and boat cover matched the single anchor, as well as a pea-sized pebble found on the floor inside the house, but did not match the sample from the driveway. So the takeaway from this is that evidence points to five anchors being made by Scott Peterson with only one found, meaning, according to the prosecution, that the other four were used to weigh down Lacey's body that he had thrown over the side of his boat and into the San Francisco Bay. Now here's the rest of our discussion. And I just want to get back to just some things that come out. And then we're going to go into why we really feel that he is, even withstanding all of this evidence, not forensic evidence, but circumstantial evidence, why we feel like he's capable of this. So they continued searching. They see Scott obsessively vacuuming the spot in front of the washer and dryer. Uh-huh. Like, that's just really odd. Um, and that's, the, that's the, on the 25th. That's on the 25th, Yeah. The day after he was interviewed by the police again, he give, he throws out the theory that Lacey wears expensive jewelry when, when she's walking in the park and that the transients might have tried to rob her. And that's when he asked the detective if they've tried using cadaver dogs. But 
they do look through the jewelry and they find all of it except for a pair of earrings. But on the 25th at 6 p.m., he finally calls Amber. And in this call, he tells her that he's with his parents in Maine. The next day on the 26th, they, they find two blood spots found on the bed in Scott and Lacey's room. They will turn, turn out to be Scott's blood. They also found some blood in his truck, like he said they would. And then there's the anchors. The homemade anchors are found at Scott's warehouse. There's two buckets found with cement residue. Concrete debris is also collected from the dining room floor at the house. And then there's pliers found in the boat with two hairs. At first, they thought it was one hair, but it was two stuck together. And those were said to be consistent with Lacey's hair. The investigation goes on. It yields over 10,000 tips. There's many sightings of Lacey in the U.S. and even abroad. A $500,000 reward is offered in March of the next year, $50,000 is added for tips that lead to the recovery of a body. Because at this point, they're, they're classifying this a homicide. The search was expanded to many, many places. Ten miles outside of town, there was a wildlife preserve. They searched waterways around Modesto area. Divers were called in. I mean, if there was a rush to judgment, they wouldn't have done all of that. You know, there was a lot. So on the 27th, Amber calls Scott and, they finally, and finally reaches him. He says he's now in New York. This is when she becomes suspicious because of the travel, because he had given her a P.O. box, but not a home address. She then calls a friend who is a cop and asks him if he can find any info on Scott Peterson. On December 28th, canine search team's tracking dogs were taken to the Berkeley Marina and the shoreline and the boat launch. And one of the dogs, tracking dogs named Trimble, hits on Lacey's scent at the marina entry and to the edge of the water. So that was part of their... Um, investigation and part of their evidence that she had been there. This is what they're going to put in their um, case. On December 30th, Amber's cop friend calls her and tells her that Scott Peterson's wife is missing in Modesto. She then calls Modesto Police Department and speaks to Detective Brocchini. He asks her if they can hook up a recorder to her phone to tape the calls. When Scott calls her, she immediately agrees. And he calls her right after they hook up the recorder and they start taping immediately. I mean, as they're hooking up the recorder, he's calls. The phone rings. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. So December 31st is the, you know, the infamous night of the New Year's Eve vigil that's held for Lacey in the park. Scott does not sit with the family on stage, but he stays in the back. Again, he doesn't want to be on the cameras. He doesn't want to be in the limelight. Sharon and the rest of the family um, are tearful and they're very stressed. But Scott shows no emotion in the photos and videos that you see from that evening. He is seen smiling and relaxed. This is the night of the infamous Paris call that he makes to Amber. This is like the worst thing ever. So she, he calls her from his missing wife's vigil mm-hmm. and lies like a rug. And he tell, <laughs> tells... Lies like a dog. He calls her and he says, he's yelling, hey, I can't hear you. I'm in Paris. I'm at the Eiffel Tower. It's crazy here. There's fireworks. It's it's New Year's Eve, right? And at this point, she knows that he's a friggin' liar. Uh And I got to give it to her, man. She she goes along. She's like, oh, wow. You've heard those tapes, (laughs) I've heard the tapes. I've heard them. They're amazing. So you guys got to look them up. You can go to YouTube or anywhere and you can find these, but they're crazy. So this what just, I don't understand is where is he that people aren't hearing him say I think he must have things. just walked around, like, you know, because they're in the park, so he could have walked, you know, further on or somewhere. I don't know. It's it's ridiculous. But this just goes to show the level of lying that this, this man can do. 
So on January 1st, the next day, he, t- he again talks to Amber, tells her he has to travel to Mexico for work, and he will return at the end of January or early February. And then he goes on to tell her all these details about his fake trip, right? This is crazy. He tells her about all the great French food he's eating. He tells her that he bruised his leg while jogging on cobblestone streets in Brussels. <laughs> Talk about getting specific with his lies. There's one right there. Well, he actually mentions that bruise twice. Well, so my yeah, thought he is did that it really was a bruise. Yeah. But probably from the boat or something uh-huh. else. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. On January 3rd, Detective Grogan shows Scott Peterson a picture of him with Amber Fry. He says it's not him. He insists he is not having an affair. This guy can lie to your face. Okay. Mm-hmm. He also tells Grogan that the patio umbrellas he had put in his truck stayed there the entire day on the 24th because he forgot to drop them off at the warehouse on his way out. The detectives believe that he used these big umbrellas to hide the body underneath as he drove out to the warehouse. Mm-hmm. So I guess we can kind of you know, surmise that he had done whatever he did to her in the house. And we got to say this, I, it wasn't a stabbing or a shooting because there was no blood. Yeah. There was, they didn't find anything like that. But how easy would it be to smother her? Something like that that doesn't leave blood. You strangle, smother, something like that. Yeah. Wrap the body in a tarp. It goes in his truck because he put the these big umbrellas, you know, like they're your patio umbrellas or whatever. There was three of them, I think, big ones, to put them over this tarp with the body in it that's rolled up or wrapped up so that it can't be seen, of course. Drives that out to the warehouse. And we talked about this, that at that point, he probably put it in the... In the boat, because there was a boat cover. Yeah. And some people were saying that the, he couldn't have done this because it was the middle, you know, it was in the broad daylight and he couldn't have backed his truck all the way into the warehouse. There was no room to do that. Well, the boat was in the warehouse, so he could have just had to get it from the back of the truck into the warehouse because the boat was in there. It's And like you said, Yolanda, it's Christmas Eve. Yeah, nobody's there. Nobody's there. Nobody's going to be at work. You know, at Christmas, on what time is it, 11 o'clock or something on Christmas Eve day? Nobody was there. Yeah. And, you know, he, he was there often enough to know what people's schedules were and who might be there or whatever. And it wouldn't have took that long, I don't think. Okay, so then we want to talk about the other thing about him going out to the marina so many times after the fact. Ugh. Yeah. In January and February, he rented a number, a number of vehicles. And these are the dates that he rented, different vehicles. It was January 1st, January 2nd, January 8th to 23rd, he rented three different cars, January 27th through 29th, and February 18th. He drives to, because they're surveilling him now, he drives to the Berkeley Marina five different times in January, in all in time, almost all the time in different vehicles. Mm-hmm. On January 3rd, hidden cameras were placed outside of his home by investigators. They also began following him in unmarked cars. On January 5th, he drives to Berkeley Marina in a Subaru. He drives to the boat launch area, then travels down the seawall on both sides before leaving. And he's just looking into the water. He's just observing something. And one of the things they were saying was that what they, the defense was trying to say later was that he was actually going to the marina to look for witnesses. But yet he, he drove around the parking lot, parked, stayed for a few minutes, and then left. He never, never got out. They saw him. They, they were watching everything he did. Mm-hmm. On January 5th, People magazine, which is a national magazine, 
article comes out about Lacey's disappearance with her picture in all over the place. So at this point, he, there is no way he expected so much media attention, especially beyond the local area. I mean, he thought he could contain it. She's in Fresno. It's only 100 miles away. He didn't think it was going to get as big as it did. And then now it's in People magazine. Now he's screwed. On January 6th, he rents a red Honda and drives to the marina again. He drives in and out of the parking lot again, not talking to anybody, but driving in and around the parking lots for some reason. On January 6th, Amber Fry leaves him a message hinting that she knows about his missing wife. He calls back and admits that he is married and his wife Lacey is missing. He keeps referring to Connor as Lacey's child. It's very weird the way he uses He says he hopes that she and her child are returned. Detached. Very detached. January 7th, he tells Fry he still wants a relationship with her, and he says that Lacey knew about the affair. He says he confessed to Lacey after his and Amber's first date in November. And this, he makes this weird comment. He tells Amber, she doesn't deserve to be missing. <laughs> wow. I think that's the most emotion he got to. On January 8th, Scott orders a Playboy channel added to his cable subscription. <laughs> this is appropriate. I'm talking about, in, I'm telling you, inappropriate. It's so inappropriate. But two days yeah. later, he cancels the Playboy channel and instead orders the Ecstasy channel, which is a cable channel with very explicit content. So the Playboy channel was, was just, yeah, it's very hardcore. Playboy channel was too tame. He couldn't, it just didn't, didn't do it for him. So you had to get some well, more. You know, you got to up the ante a little when your wife's missing. God. On January 9th, he drives to the marina again. He drives down to the boat launch again, then again drives along both sides of the marina. Is he looking for the body? What is he doing? I don't know. It creeps me out. Yeah. Does he think she's going to pop up? Like, oh, my God. What if she pops up? I mean, what's he going to do? Swim out there? I mean, uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's very odd. So on January 10th, the police start placing wiretaps on his phones. And this continues until February 4th. Oh, my God. The stuff that they record is amazing. (laughs) So beginning in the second week in January, he started staying with his sister, Ann Bird in Berkeley, which is the one you were talking about. Um, she says that he flirts with her babysitter, which inappropriate, seems very happy, very relaxed. Um, yeah, he's just not, he's just not tracking with what's going on here. He's just not knowing how to act. January 11th, while he's in, in the Berkeley Marina area, he receives a phone call, cell phone call from his mother. He tells her he's in Fresno. Now, why? Why is he lying and that, he does this repeatedly he's to different always, people. He's constantly, he's constantly lying. That afternoon, he gets a phone call on his answering machine from Sharon telling him that detectives have informed them that an object was found in the water, but it is not Lacey's body. He can hear, be heard whistling in response. They call this the whistle call. So she goes, Scott, I just wanted to tell you, they checked that object that they found in the water. It is not Lacey. We knew it wasn't because, of course, his, her mother is very hopeful, you know, that mm-hmm. they're going to still find her alive. So I just wanted to let you know that it wasn't Lacey that they found. And you hear him because he's listening to it, but he, you, you can hear him being recorded, too. And he whistles. He's like, <whistles> like a relief whistle, right? Yeah. It's really creepy. So he just keeps lying over and over. They know where he's at, and he's always telling people he's somewhere else for no reason, no really good reason. No. no none at all. So on January 11th, the police suspect that Scott knows they're tailing him, and they call off the surveillance. GPS um, that they've placed on his vehicles also showed that he went to the marina on the 26th and the 27th of January. He keeps going out there. Police then on January 15th tell Sharon and Ron about Scott's affair with Amber. 
and that he'd recently taken out an insurance policy on Lacey. Sharon breaks down, realizing that Scott probably killed her. This is when she finally allows it to sink. Others Can you imagine? I know. Can you imagine, though? No. I mean, Ugh. that's got to be... Because at that point, she said she just thought, now I know she's dead. You know? Yeah. So other detectives tell Scott's parents about the affair and showed him pictures of Scott and Amber together. Now they're telling Scott's parents this, right? Lee asked when the pictures were taken, how the cops obtained them. And when they, when they told him that Amber turned them over to them, well, Amber herself turned the pictures over to the police and, were, and was working with them, he asked, why the hell would she do that? Really? <laughs> Gee, I don't Not- know. Not, oh my God, I can't believe my son would do something like that. Yeah, cops were like, uh, we kind of see that there's a moral compass missing here in this mm-hmm. family. Then Jackie leaves messages for a message for Scott. She doesn't know the phones are tapped either. She tells him, quote, I think you should deny, deny, deny. I was told that years ago by an attorney. That's what I had to do. And I really feel that that's right because it will be talked about and it could leak and it's not good. Unquote. Yeah, a little moral compass missing in this family. So, you know, one thing we never mentioned: what was um, their nickname in their family for Scott? Oh God, Scott was called the Golden Boy. He was the Golden Boy, Everybody, and it wasn't even like tongue in cheek. No, it was serious. Everybody called him the Golden. He was the Golden Boy, and I'll, we'll mm-hmm. talk about that in, in you know, kind of in a minute. We'll kind of summarize all of that stuff, but. Uh, January 16th, a National Enquirer prints the story about the affair with Amber Fry. Sharon Rocha that day calls Scott, begging him to tell her where Lacey's body is. She's angry and she's shouting at him for lying. Tells him to stop lying, to be a man, and tell her so she can bury her daughter. This call is recorded. During this whole thing, which would break anybody's heart, he just continues to calmly deny any involvement, keeps calling her mom. I don't know, mom. I wish I knew mom. I wish I knew where she was, mom. We all want her back, mom. Oh, my God. If she could come to that phone, she probably would have friggin' choked him. He's, but he doesn't get upset or angry at all. There's absolutely no... You would think if he was innocent, he would be like... Pissed. How, you know, I love her. What are you talking about? I couldn't hurt her. It's heartbreaking to hear her because she's just saying, we don't even care what you do. Just tell us where and then Disappear. Disappear. We'll never see you again. We don't care. We just want to know where she is. Nothing. You could at least cry. I wish I knew too or something, right? Or I I can't believe that you would think of me like that. Yeah. How could you? I love her, you know, but with real emotion. Real emotion. There's, yeah, never any emotion. Not a robot. On January 21st, detectives suspect that Lacey's body is in the bay. Um, On the 22nd, the next day, um, Scott tells a real estate agent that he wants to list his house for sale and inquires if he could do so with it furnished. Agent says nothing, but thinks this highly, what's the word? Inappropriate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So on the 29th, he again presses a real estate agent about selling the house. The agent tells him that he will need a lawyer to determine if he can do so without his missing wife on the title. I'm signing, you know, away. He then begins uh, talking about renting the house out instead. The same day, he trades Lacey's car, the Land Rover, in for a truck. So all of this just shows that he is not expecting her to come back. No. You know, there's, he knows she's not coming back. And when they asked him about the car, he said something about, well, she wouldn't want to come back to that, that if 
she came back, it, it would the memories would be too too bad for her. Why? She wasn't in the truck, the car. <laughs> it no was parked at the house. Yeah. Oh my god! So then the Diane Sawyer interview, just one of the, the oh god about this. He tells her that Lacey knew about the affair. He says he told police immediately after about the affair, which was an, a lie, of course. He said even after he told Lacey, he continued to see Amber. He says that he told Amber about Lacey going missing two days after, later on December 26th, which is a lie. Um, Diane Sawyer pointedly asked him about Connor's nursery. He says he can't go in there, but, quote, that door is closed until there's someone to put in there, but it's ready, unquote. To someone to put in there, not my son or our baby. That was something that everybody was talking about. Like, what is he talking about? Someone? Mm-hmm. Going to pick anyone? I mean, it, it was just very odd. So there was a sighting of a woman that people said was Lacey that was videotaped, like at a store or something in Longview, Washington. That was reported in the media. Friends call Scott at that time to ask him about it. He tells them that he has spoken with police in Washington and they will contact him once they know anything but the Modesto PD was tapping his calls and know that's a lie that he never called Washington. And then the next day, his mother calls him to ask about the Longview tip. She leaves a voicemail asking if he is getting a flight to Washington and says she would like she would be going that she would want to go if you know she was him. While she's talking, right before it ends, he can be heard chuckling at the end of the call. Found somebody they think it's Lacey. Are you heading up there? Are you getting a flight? And he's laughing. What does that tell you? He knows she's not there. Yeah, he knows. He doesn't call the Longview Police Department until February 3rd, like three days later. They tell him to call the Modesto PD because they've already turned over the videotapes. And he hadn't called them either. And then he finally did. And they said they already looked. And I guess Sharon had confirmed that it wasn't, wasn't her. So they end the wiretaps on the phone on February 4th because they think he's getting wise to it again. On February 7th, he asked Amber to run away from him. I'm sorry. On February 7th, he asked Amber to run away with him. And (laughs) (laughs) she should have run away from him. On February 10th was actually Lacey's due date. And also on February 10th, he leaves gifts for Amber. February 18th is the search that's conducted for his home. And before they enter, he asks if they can, if he can retrieve a duffel bag from inside the house, they agree, but they want to search it first. It contains $2,000 in cash, clothes, his wedding ring, and a bottle of wine. They later also find out that two hours before the search is conducted, Scott had called and canceled his cable service. Gee, I wonder why. (laughs) Jesus. During the search, this is where they find the concrete pieces in the dining room. They also find that one pillowcase is missing from the master bedroom bedding. Connor's nursery, this is when they find that it is now being used to store boxes and other items in. There's so many items thrown in it, they they can't even hardly open the door and maneuver around. And I looked at the video today and it was like there's, like he had rolled like two or three office chairs, like those big kind of leather kind of looking office chairs in there that were blocking, you know, the crib. On top of some of the chairs, there was like those, it looks like those cloth bags, drawstring bags that you get from like a cleaners. It looks like maybe there was clothes or something material in there. Where did all this stuff come from? I don't know. I don't even know. I mean, there was just a bunch of junk. Just all, again, he knows that nursery is not going to be used. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they also searched his storage facility and found that Scott and Lacey's wedding album was in there in a wastebasket. 
Yeah, not too subtle there, dude. Um, on February 19th, Amber tells Scott that she was cutting off contact with him. Let's take a break to hear a few holiday greetings from some fantastic podcasters. Hey, I'm Lauren. And I'm Michael. We just wanted to say happy holidays to everybody out there. And keep creeping from True Crime Guys. Hey, it's CK from Marths and Monsters. Just want to wish Esther and all our fantastic listeners happy holidays, happy Christmas, happy New Year, all the happiness. Slancha for good health. This is the fall line, and we want to wish you a very happy holiday. Hey, it's Jerry from Hillbilly Horror Stories. Just wanted to wish all of you Once Upon a Crime listeners a very happy holiday. So we're going into April now. He buys a car in San Diego in his mother's name. This is funny. So he gives his mother's name, and her name is Jacqueline Peterson. And he tells us that that's his name. But he goes by Jack. He said it's like a boy called Sue. Yeah, it's a boy called Sue kind of thing, he said. Anyway, he pays this guy $3,600 in cash for this you know, used car. But it's not just any used car. It has to be a used Mercedes, by the way. Oh, was it? Okay. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Uh-huh. I just knew it was a used car. April 13th, the body of a baby is found on the shoreline in Richmond. A strong storm the day before is believed to have washed it up. It is found at, a, at the high tide water line with a lot of other debris around it. And the next day on April 14th, a torso is found at Point Isabel in Richmond, less than a mile from where the baby's body was found, one and a quarter miles from Brooks Island, where Scott said he was fishing on the 24th. Sharon calls Scott to tell him about the discovery, leaves a message, and he doesn't return her call. He also doesn't call detectives to inquire, even after it's reported in the media. So bodies, of course, are determined through de- uh, rush DNA testing to be those of Lacey and Connor. On her body are still portions of the tan slacks that she was reported wearing on the 23rd. And I could really quickly go through the autopsy results. So for the Lacey's body, head, neck, forearms, lower left leg were all missing. Uh, her bra, though, was still on and intact. The button and zipper on her pants was still intact and in place, so they believe there was no sign of a sexual assault. She was determined to have died while still pregnant. The uterus had not shrunk down, as happens soon after giving birth. The baby was determined not to have passed through the birth canal, cervix, and lower uterus were still closed. Nothing to indicate the baby was delivered by a cesarean section. The fetus seemed to look to have exited through the top of the uterus, so that would be because it was in the body. Um, Lacey's, and as the tissues broke down, that's how the fetus was able to exit the body. Lacey's body was found with three upper ribs fractured, and the ME would determine, or the ME determined that this happened prior to death. So for me, this maybe indicates a suffocation, that maybe he was on top of her. Yeah. And remember that pillowcase was missing? I don't know. Could be something like that. Also, the baby was determined to be 32 weeks into gestation, between 32 weeks to 32 weeks and six days of gestation before he died. So had not been, had not been born before he died. Mm-hmm. Um, on April 16th, they were surveilling Scott in San, he was in San Diego now because they didn't want him to cross the border, try to get away. Um, so they were, they were following him. 
He was driving the different car now. He had a goatee and dyed hair. He told his friend his hair had lightened because he had been in the swimming pool. Yeah, okay. <laughs> come on, dude. Come up with a different... <laughs> says that that's so stupid i mean if you had said you know i'm getting hounded by the media so i was trying to change my appearance yeah people would have understood that yeah yeah dude yeah not too smart um scott on april 18th scott is followed and finally pulled over by police and arrested in san diego i think you think they i mean there was like a 160 mile round chase thing not chase but following him uh-huh. he was flipping people off he was acting like an ass only after being handcuffed does he ask if the, the bodies found were those of Lacey and Connor. He is also found with $15,000 in cash, Mexican currency, two driver's license, one belonging to his brother, a credit card in Jackie's name, a credit card in his sister Ann Bird's name, Viagra, extra clothing, camping equipment, and a map that was printed out that day that was to Amber Fry's place of work. Which, remember, she had stopped talking to him or seeing him. Well, he needed the Viagra before he went there. God, jeez. So, yeah, that's pretty creepy. Um, You think? Yeah, super creepy. So, going into 2004, finally in June, a trial is held. From June to October, that's a pretty long trial. Mm-hmm. Um, then the, pe- and the they were sequestered the whole time, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, I think so. At least, At least during part of it, they were... Um, It took about a week. They deliberated for about a week. On November 12th, the guilty verdict was reached. It was a first-degree murder for Lacey and second-degree for Connor. Um, December 30th to the 9th, another week, was the penalty phase. And on December 13th, the death sentence was handed down. So he was given death, which some people, I think, if anything, if they're going to appeal anything, I would think maybe his lawyers would say death penalty was a bit harsh or something um, because we've seen much worse that didn't get just got, you know, life in prison or whatever. Um, I think there was, if there's a motion in anything, it was in the sentencing, not so much the verdict, at least in my opinion, because I think him getting life could have been, you know, punishment that was deserving. But I think that it was also because of, you know, she was pregnant. There was a lot of emotion tied to that for sure. They didn't think there was really a financial motive. They did know that she had some inheritance coming to her, but there wasn't a whole lot of indication that he knew or if he thought he was going to get that or anything like that. Uh, She had jewelry. It was stuff that was worth money, worth like over $100,000 that she had inherited, but they had sold a couple of pieces of it, but only about $250 worth. He was not doing well in his job. He, He was living beyond his means. But so that was, I think, a second, they thought maybe a secondary motive, motive, but they really thought that he just wanted his freedom. He had met somebody, yeah. um, even maybe before he met her, he wanted to find a way out and he wanted his freedom. And Amber, to him, was was starting a new life. And well, the divorce. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing. So quickly going into his family background a little bit, because this is what we're going to talk a little bit about why. We think he was who he was and why he did what he did. And we believe that he did murder his wife and unborn son. First of all, I don't know how many people know this about his family. Some of it came out in the past. His mother, Jackie Peterson, when she was just a little girl, her father was murdered while being robbed at his business. And this happened on, and this is uh, odd and kind of eerie, 
December 21st, 1945. So it was Christmas time. Um, a former employee of his attacked him as he was closing up for the night, hitting him with a pipe and killing him. He basically laid there all night dead, and his wife did not report him missing, even when he didn't come home at all that night. An employee actually found his body when he came to, into work the next morning. The murderer was caught and sentenced to prison in San Quentin, which is where Scott Peterson is now. Of course, this is a long time ago, but... Wow, crazy. That's crazy coincidence, yeah. So Jackie's mother was left with four children to care for. Jackie was the only girl. When she was just two... This is, you know, this is how young she was when her father died, but her mother couldn't handle it. So all of this, all of the, her kids were sent to a Catholic orphanage called the Nazareth House, which is somewhere in San Diego County, I think. Nazareth House was later determined to be a place where children were routinely abused and sexually molested. It was, I mean, it was, there's some horrible stories about it, um, what these kids went through. Jackie, however, would say that she was fortunate to have been given three meals a day and a roof over her head and never admitted to being abused. She, at the time, though, when she was there, she became very ill with asthma while she was still very young, and that would affect her breathing her whole life. So you see her in the trials where she's got the, the oxygen tank always with her. Um, she suffered from that, as, you know, from the time she was very young. So Jackie and her brothers were sent away, and also the boys and girls were separated, so she didn't, she rarely got to see her brothers while she was there. But she was able to go home when she was 13 years old, remember she went in there at age two. She was sent home at age 13 and she was about just about to enter high school. I believe um, they needed her home to care for her ill mother. I mean, what would that be like? You're sent away cause I can't take yeah. care of you, but now you need to come take care of me. I think this is something, especially when kids are separated from their parents when they're very young, that they really have to find a way to cope emotionally. And a lot of times that means shutting down. And yeah. I think that this, we'll see this kind of, this happens because she will, she doesn't admit to anything bad ever happening at Nazareth house. And you should hear these stories. They're horrific, you know, by I, many, many people. I didn't know that part of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So soon after she graduated high school, though, her mother died. She was very ill. Um, at age 19, right after she graduated, or soon after she graduated, Jackie became pregnant and gave birth to a boy who she gave up for adoption. His name was Don. Two years later, she became pregnant again, this time giving birth to a girl, which was Anne, Anne Bird. And she was also given up for adoption. But just a year later, and she wasn't married to any of these people, and they, apparently they were different people. They weren't all the same men. Um, year later, she gave birth again, None of the men married her or stayed around, like I said, after she became pregnant. And she gave birth to her son, John. She was also planning to give him up for adoption, but her pediatrician stepped in. He admonished her, saying she couldn't keep having babies and giving them away. So she kept John and raised him alone. So five years later, she met and married Lee Peterson, who had three children from a prior marriage of his own. Lee later adopted John. And Lee then started a company in 1975 in San Diego, and he actually built a fortune. They became pretty well-to-do. Scott was the only child of Lee and Jackie, and he was born on October 24th, 1972, a year after they got married. Now, here's the part, again, I think it's kind of history repeating itself in a, a different kind of way. Scott, soon after birth, became ill with pneumonia and was separated from his mother and put in an oxygen tent as a newborn. He was there for some time. He was very fragile, 
at that time they didn't know they didn't do that thing where make sure that the mother bonds with the baby. They'd put him in there, and he was basically on his own um, in this oxygen tent, not having contact, physical contact with his mother. But same thing happened to his mother. She was separated from her mother and father, lost her father very young, separated from her mother, and didn't have those emotional bonds with a parent, which is so important for somebody to learn all the things that they need to have, like empathy and, you know, being able to feel safe showing emotions and having emotions and being connected to people and all that stuff. And it just was taken away because of these circumstances. Scott is considered by his parents uh, and they call him the perfect child. And he is called known as the golden child. They say he never rebelled. He was never a problem to his parents. He was always very close to them. He was very obedient, et cetera, et cetera. And by all accounts, this is the kind of kid he was and the kind of man he grew up to be. Yeah. And they said that it started where he could, he figured out how to please his parents and do the right thing and be this perfect kid really early, like, like a toddler. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and they, they do because there's something that happens in, I think, just in your, just in your knowing as, as, because you have to, you have to just be instinctual, I guess, when you're a baby, because of course you don't understand things, but there's things that you know what to do. And again, because of that separation, perhaps, or perhaps because his mother came into motherhood like that. Think about it. She gave up three children in a row, two children in a row, was giving up a third child and then had this one. So there's something there that I'm not saying it was easy for her, but it was something that she did. So maybe she may have distanced herself in a way emotionally yeah. from Scott because she may not have been able to handle that because she didn't have that with her own parents. So that could have been something that was very difficult to emotionally connect with him. And maybe that's why he was always trying to be perfect. Yeah. Because you have to have something to, to feel secure. If I don't do anything wrong, then mom won't leave. Or if I don't do anything wrong, then dad will care about me or be here for me or whatever, that kind of thing. So all of that can be very, um, you know, first of all, it, it goes through generations. And secondly, it's very instinctual. Lee also had three children from his first marriage, but he rarely saw them. And one of the big problems that they said he would say that was a big problem in his marriage was they would um, fight about the children. Like there was just, he just couldn't handle it. This baby was something that Scott heard or sensed that his dad didn't like kids who gave him a hard time, you know, yeah. and he, he would leave them. He wouldn't be around for them. So that could be another reason he had to be Mr. Perfect. The family reported that Jackie also lied about many things. She was always trying to make things seem more normal or better than they were. Again, living in this denial bubble. Some people said they felt very off kilter around her because she would tell them one thing and then later say she'd never said that. That's one example that she'd say, oh, you know, I did this. Oh, you said, no, I didn't. I didn't say, what are you talking about? That kind of thing. And they're like, you, oh my God. So you, it's, it was that whole kind of gaslighting thing. Like, oh my God. Yeah. That's crazy making right there. That's crazy mm-hmm. making. Um, Lee loved golfing. He was an avid golfer. So Scott began golfing with him at age five. Lee aspired for his son to be a top ranked golfer. Scott, of course, probably really fed into this because it was a way to please his father. You know, that's one of those things that sometimes yeah, they will do. All descriptions of Scott, like we said, as a boy were, here's some of the words, polite, quiet, serious, responsible, well-mannered, 
There are no reports of him being a normal kid who got into trouble or rebelled at anything at all, ever. In contrast, when his older half-brother John got into trouble in his teens, he was sent away to live with relatives out of state. So what is that? What do you, th- what do you think Scott's getting here? You if you're have, bad, you get sent away. You're bad. You better play the role you were born to play. You better be the perfect child, the golden child, because if you're not, you're out of here, dude. Mm-hmm. That's what he's, he could have been sensing. Scott, by all accounts, earned good grades. He, we talked about he does volunteer work. He's praised by his teachers, on and on and on. Just the perfect little person, little man, all of that. He then joined his high school golf team. And guess who one of his teammates was in his golf team? Oh, I knew this. I forget. Phil Mickelson. That's right. Yeah, he went to school with Phil Mickelson. Phil Mickelson was a couple years older, I think. First of all, you're in the shadow of Phil Mickelson, one of the best golfers who ever lived, right? Okay. He and he tells uh, Scott tells teammates that he's earned a goal, uh, a golf scholarship to Arizona State, which was a lie. He did not. This is when he starts dating girls, and as he's dating these girls, he's cheating on them with other girls immediately. This began in high school. He does this all the time. So I'll give you just as kind of rundown of the ones we know. And Cal, he so he goes to Cal Poly, which is a you know very good school. He dates a woman named Lauren Putnant. She calls him a gentleman. He never swore, she said, but she said he was a mama's boy. His mother babied him. They dated for about 18 months, and then he began talking about marriage. She said she wasn't ready, and she also said she was tiring of him. She goes, he seemed very fake. He was robotic. He showed very little emotion. He was bland because she didn't know, like, there was no there there. Like, he didn't have his own personality, per se. Um, and this is what they'll say is he'll mimic other people, people like this who don't have that inner core of emotion will learn really quickly how they're supposed to act, what somebody else wants, and they'll be whatever that is. But that can get very, very boring because there's no second person in the relationship. It's like you with yourself. Yeah. <laughs> because, oh, I like cheese. I like cheese too. Oh, I love this, my favorite movie. Oh, that's my favorite movie. You know, I mean, it's really boring, right? There's and, nothing to and talk actually, about. That's- that's really funny because that is one thing that his half sister actually mentioned as a good thing between him and Lacey was that they would share a meal mm-hmm. and they would order different things and, and they would compare notes. Oh, did you, did, did you taste that? Oh, wasn't that, Oh, wasn't this the best? And they did that. Yeah. So I could see where he would do that with her. Yeah. And she would, you know, because she was pretty, naive, I think, and young, and she just thought this, you know, this is love of my life. To her, that was all good because, you know, it was working. Like, oh, he likes what I like. He does the things that I like that he does, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And they also bring in the fact that Lacey, like her dad left her mom when Lacey was very young. And she had, you know, her stepfather who became her father. But that could be, that's something that sometimes, you know, girls become when the, especially their first love or whatever, become very attached to that person because it's like, don't leave me. The other thing that was said about Lacey, and I don't know that we went into this yet, but that she was very much about appearances and doing things the right way. Quote, it was a whole Martha right Stewart lifestyle. Yes. 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 That everything was, you know, looked a certain way. And, and another thing, unless you've lived under a rock, you've seen a picture of Scott Peterson. Yeah. 
He wasn't a bad looking guy. Yeah. No, he was a good looking guy. And, you know, she was beautiful. Yeah, she was gorgeous. And they just looked like a perfect couple. Yeah. You know, good looking. He was a little bit more stoic and quiet. And she was very bubbly and talkative. And so they were like that, you know, two halves of one whole. And so that's what people thought. Oh, they're they're a great couple. You know, she's the fun one. She's the energetic one. He's the very steady, even keel guy, you know, and that's what he was, of course, because if you don't have an emotional core, you're pretty even keel. Like nothing, nothing rattles you. Nothing makes you angry, really. Nothing. It's all underneath. It's all underneath. It doesn't show. Well, Um, and you're also having to stay quiet to be able to figure out how you're supposed to act based on the people around you. Right. So right after he, this woman breaks up with him, this Lauren, Lauren woman breaks up with him, he starts dating Lacey right after. She was at Cal Poly studying ornamental horticulture, which is funny because we just said that's all about how, you know, beautiful things, ornamental mm-hmm. horticulture, right? He used Lacey to try, the first thing he did was use Lacey to try to make Lauren jealous. He brought Lacey with him to sit in a section of the cafe where Lauren was the server. Lacey could see what he was doing and she got very upset. She got, went to the bathroom, she was crying and somebody had to go in and get her. He's using this woman already. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they become engaged in 1994, just before Christmas. This is going to be a theme. And they move in together in 1995, right before Christmas. There's, oh, it's, I don't know why. It's Christ, always Christmas. So weird. Yeah. Okay. So in one year, he had started at Cal Poly as a student, dated Lauren, tried to get her back, began dating Lacey, and asked her to marry him all in that same year. So why he was moving so fast on this I don't know. Maybe he just did, felt untethered. You know, he wasn't with his parents anymore. He needed somebody there to tell him how to be. Yeah. You know what I mean? He didn't know how to do that on his own. He was always with somebody. And it's always a, a woman, you know. You but, know, and I wouldn't doubt. His mother may have said, you know, you really need to find a woman to take care of you. Mm-hmm. Because he would have done anything his mother told him to. Also, Scott didn't find out about his other two siblings until he was already in college. His two, mm-hmm. the two that were given away. Don had found um, Jackie Peterson, his birth mother, a year earlier in 1993 and contacted her, but she didn't tell them for a year. Don then found Anne in 1997 and then told her she should contact Jackie. So Scott and Lacey married in 1997. And Ron Gransky, he was like, you know, her father. He was there since she was like two. So he was really her father. But Lacey's actual birth father did come to the wedding unfortunately apparently he's a big alcoholic um he got, came to our wedding drunk and made a scene which that's terrible um but people called scott and Lacey the perf- perfect couple no one ever saw them argue or fight Lacey, they said tended to smile even through pain when she was at disneyland and she was walking and her feet were killing her they're like how are you doing she was oh my god my feet are killing me and she's smiling that they said just how she was. She didn't want to bring anybody down, I guess. Lacey's sister, Amy, said she never heard her sister say anything negative about Scott. Like, I mean, a normal wife would be, oh, my God, he's such, he's such a slob or, it's you know, so he never weird. picks up his underwear. And something, nothing, never, which is, I don't know what that is. <laughs> which makes no sense because of all of these other things she'd already dealt with with him. Yeah. I mean, the first date. I think she, like they said, she liked to put a positive spin on things. She liked to see the good side of things and she would deny the negative or she would just ignore it. She would just push it aside. And it might've been hard for her to handle things that were so heavy or 
you know, sad or whatever. They weren't perfect. Yeah, weren't perfect. When they married on August 9th, 1997, the manager at the reception venue remembers that Scott was at the bar before the reception began, was trying to get one of the waitress's phone numbers and made sexual <laughs> comments to her. He said he thought it was very, what's the word? Inappropriate. Inappropriate. That should just be a t-shirt he wears. I'm inappropriate. So they lived apart right after they married because he was still going to school in Morro Bay, which is in the Central Coast, and she was working in Prunedale, which was about two hours away. He lived with uh, three other male roommates, and Lacey would come up sometimes to stay at the weekends at his place. But... Soon after he got married, when they were living apart, he began a relationship. I'm not even going to call it an affair. This was a full-blown relationship with a woman named Janet, who was a sophomore at Cal Poly, who was six years younger than him. He talked with her about starting a business and becoming wealthy. He gave her six dozen roses on their first date. Now, okay, I'm sorry, but to me, red flag, when somebody totally overdoes it at the very beginning, it's like, oh, my God, you're going to be a pain in the ass. It's like six dozen roses? Come on. That's just ridiculous. That's just too much. He saw it in a movie. She was a vegetarian, and he told her that he stopped eating meat as well. Again, he has to mimic. Mm -hmm. So she also, okay, he's married. His roommates know he's married. His wife comes to stay with him, right? She meets his roommates, and he goes with her to meet her family. She, of course, never meets his family. And they date for five months. This is right after he got married. Do you think it's because Lacey was not there day to day that he had to have some woman there? No, I think he did it to see what he could get away with doing. Mm, that's true, too. I think that was his first foray into how can I still do whatever I want to do? Mm-hmm. Is it going to still be possible for me to do whatever I feel like doing? To still have my freedom. Yeah. To still have my life the way I want it. Yeah. Regardless of having a wife. But it's it's just so odd because why get married? And he was able to. Yeah. So, okay. So this is how this relationship ends. She arrives late one night unannounced and finds him in bed with Lacey. And then finds out that he's married because he's in bed with his wife. So, And his roommate had to explain that to really? her because he didn't bother even reacting, right? Right. What happens? She walks in. She sees it. She gets upset. I don't know if she yells or whatever she does to yeah, him. She's sitting there screaming at them in bed. Yeah. And Scott's just laying there. doesn't even get out of bed. Doesn't even get and, it. He doesn't get it. She doesn't show any embarrassment. He doesn't no. seem upset at all. He's just like, oh, sorry. And, and the roommate, the one that had let her in the house was like, oh shit. I didn't know. I guess didn't know that Lacey was there that weekend. Went in there, grabbed her, pulled her out. Oh Yeah. And then explain to her, he's not cheating on you with her. That's his wife. He's cheating on her with you. Oh, God. That makes it all better. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then he showed up at her house the next day. Yeah. Yeah. And she, he's still trying to see her. And she's like, uh, no, he doesn't even get why she wouldn't still see him. She doesn't get it. But then because she basically rejects him and tells him, you know, go to hell. He goes to a bar, gets drunk, and exposes himself to the bar patrons, which his girlfriend takes to mean, she goes, he was always worried about that his penis size wasn't adequate. So was he trying to get, you know, make, take a survey? What was going on there? <laughs> hey, what do you think? Is this adequate? What about you? 
<laughs> How many stars? Oh my God, it was psycho. Oh my God. So anyway, the next year, so he stays married. You no, know, Lacey stays with them. They stay married. The next year, he starts another extramarital relationship with a woman named Katie Hansen. He tells her that he's single. Here's the thing. Lacey had moved to San Luis Obispo now. She was living there with him. But he was, I think he started the, the affair before she moved back, but he continued it when she moved there. Him and this woman uh, dated for over two months. He would also bring Mackenzie. This was the dog um, that Lacey, Lacey actually bought him this dog as a puppy. He would take Mackenzie with him on his dates with Katie. Now, that's just wrong. That's just wrong. That's just an asshole thing to do. Oh, my God. How could you be so cold, you know? Well, and he was making it like this was their little family. Yeah, he always did. Look what he did with Amber. It was the same thing. Mm -hmm. Like... He told Katie then he planned to travel around the world after graduation and he might run for mayor of the small uh, town of Fillmore, which was nearby. So he's always making himself out to be better. I don't know. Maybe he believed that, that that was going to be because remember, his parents were were pretty well to do. You know, they live in San Diego. They live in a nice neighborhood. They drove nice cars. They had mom owned an antique shop. Yeah, they had money. And so this was one of the things, too, is that Jackie Peterson did not think that Lacey was good enough for him. He thought she, she was some girl who came from some one-horse town. She was a hick. She was not... Down the wrong side of the track. Wrong side of the tracks. She hated that they lived in Modesto. Oh, yeah. Hated it. Hated it, yeah. But there, that was not good enough for her son. Oh, and by the way, that was how they bought their house. That They, they paid... They gave them $30,000 for the down payment. Mm-hmm. And um, he belonged to that country club because his parents paid for his membership. Yeah, it was $25,000 membership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that they paid for him. So he could golf because, you know, he needed to golf. So Katie sees Lacey at Scott's graduation and Lacey puts a lay around his neck and gives him a big kiss. This is when Katie realizes something is off here. And, yeah, and, and in then, front of the family. In like front of the his family. family. In front of the family, yeah. So then, of course, she finds out that he's married. She breaks things off with him. He, of course, still sends her flowers, but she doesn't contact him again. Then at this point, he's graduated. He and Lacey opened a restaurant near Cal Poly called The Shack. Um, this, was, this is something that Scott would always envision himself as he was going to be a business owner. He was going to, like his father, make a fortune, but they, they really didn't. They, you know, restaurants are notoriously hard to make a profit at. They're, you know, you can lose money really quickly. Um, they didn't keep it too long. They ended up selling it soon after. They had to move in with Lacey's parents for a while. They moved to Modesto because she wanted to be by her parents. She wanted to be back there. And now because the business failed, here's the reason why we can we can go stay with my parents. And then he got a job and all of that. So they ended up staying in Modesto. But like you said, they got a $30,000 gift from Scott's parents to buy a house because you know that his mother was not going to want him in some apartment in Modesto, right? No. And I'm sure she didn't want him living with his in-laws. But she did think Modesto was beneath him. He started working at that point for Trade Corp, um, which was that place he was working at with the warehouse. He was selling fertilizer and agricultural products. He was a salesperson. By all accounts, he wasn't very good at it. His sales weren't great. Not only did they give him the $25,000 membership for the local country club, they also loaned them the money to put in the pool in their house. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So Lacey wanted to have children right away. Her whole thing was marriage and family. That's what she wanted. Um, but she had had a surgery as a girl because she had a tumor as a, as a young girl. 
and she had a surgery and she had to have part of a, a, a fallopian, one of her fallopian tubes removed. So it was more difficult to get pregnant. So she didn't. So for the first two years, she did not conceive. But then afterwards, she became pregnant. When somebody in the family asked, how do you feel now? You know, she's finally pregnant. And he said, honestly, I was hoping for infertility. And I think that's true. That was definitely going to change his life, even though his life was not much at that point. It was basically going to work and, you know, whatever. But I think Mm -hmm. his idea of his life was always going to be more. And maybe he could still run around and have affairs and do whatever, you know. But with a child, it's going to be a little bit harder to do. Um, And this is where I wanted to bring statistic that I found that leading cause of death of pregnant women in the U.S. is murder. Isn't that weird? Wow. I didn't know that. I didn't either. (laughs) And it says 170 out of every 1,000 pregnant women is assaulted by their partner during the last five months of their pregnancy. 170 out of 1,000. That is really high. Again, pregnancy, you know, having, having a child, all of that is, it's stressful. You know, it could be a very, you know, happy thing, but it creates stress because difficult, your partner changes. They're not going to be this person they were when they weren't pregnant. You know, more tired, they can do less. They may have to stop working, which means less income. A baby is very expensive for all the things they need. I mean, on and on and on. So it does create a lot of stress. Reading all of this and going through his background, it really seems to me that, and then looking at his demeanor during the whole, the whole thing, during the whole trial and the whole investigation and everything, he doesn't react at all. And, and this was the thing, at first it showed as positive with him, like he never got angry, he was very compliant, he was trying to please, he was very responsible, you know, he was doing all the things that you're supposed to do or what he believed he was supposed to do. And because he didn't get angry about it, his mother was not the nicest person. Would the, the one, the famous comment no. that she said when they said something about the body in the bay being in the bay and she goes, oh my God, nobody would be stupid enough to put a body in a place where they said they were on that day. Not even you, Scott. Yeah. So that just tells you that she would say very negative oh, things yeah. to him. You oh, know. she said all kinds of stuff. Yeah. 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 And so, but he never showed any anger. He never rebelled. He never told his parents, back off. Let me live my life the way I want. I don't want to be a damn golfer. I don't want to, you know, whatever, yeah. which most teenagers are going to do. Mm-hmm. He never did any of that. I think it all culminated into this one thing where he finally felt kind of painted into a corner and he put it in his mind that Amber was going to be his, his exit. I'm going to have this other life. And because yeah. think about it, he was, again, he, he was running this business, supposedly. He was supposedly traveling. He had parents who had money, whatever. Amber had nothing. Amber was a very young single mother, barely struggling to make it. He comes along. He looks like the big hero. So now he can put himself in the hero because at this point, all the things that he thought he was going to be or thought he could be maybe for Lacey, he was not. He failed at. He didn't have a business that was successful. He thought, I don't know, I guess he didn't think they would have kids. Now he has to be a father and deal with all of that. 
he didn't have the money he thought he was going to have. He, I mean, I saw the house. It was a nice house. It was fixed up nice, but it was just a very small, just a working class house. Yeah. Nothing special to it, you know, and it was not what he was supposedly born to be as the golden child. And one of the things too, that if you think about and you want to put that in place, so Lacey's not no longer in the picture and he's going to step in and be this person for Amber and her daughter, just like his father did with exactly. his mother. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because his father did. I mean, his mother was you know, floundering, and then he comes along, and he becomes a successful businessman. Well, yep. you know, they had been married, what, four or five years, six years, something like that? Yeah, six years. He wasn't close to that, and he was having problems at work because he was in charge of that office, and he was supposed to be bringing in the sales, and he had another salesperson, and they were supposed to be you know, basically per- turning a profit. And they weren't. And they weren't. As a matter of fact, during the investigation, he had called his landlord at the warehouse and said he was going to vacate the premises in 30 days. I think that he was going under. And it was also, you know, everything else was going with, I don't know even how much he was at work anymore because of all that. But um, even before that, they said he wasn't doing, wasn't doing well. Um, they actually, Trade Corp had only been in, uh, it was a division that had been from a company out of Spain. Yeah, it was in another and, country. Yeah, it was like a startup basically in the U.S. And um, it hadn't turned a profit. I read the specifics, but they were in the red over a hundred thousand yeah. dollars. I can't remember how much exactly it was. So I think that all of those things they brought in when they were trying to going through the penalty phase or, and they were, had all these people come in, teachers, uh, coaches, um, employers, family members who all never, nobody had ever seen him and get angry. Nobody had ever seen him, you know, so as much as get a traffic ticket. And I think that was because he doesn't have this core of a, of a real person who feels and experiences what other people do. So that's why he could have an affair on his pregnant wife and then lie to his, you know, mistress and tell her all of these lies and talk, lie to his mother and lie to everybody and not seem to stress him out in the least. I mean, that's why he can be interviewed the night his wife goes missing and be completely calm. And That's crazy. That's yeah. how he can eat ranch with his <laughs> God. <laughs> I'm never going to look at ranch the same again. And you know, people in other countries are going, ranch with their pizza? <laughs> I really doubt they have ranch in San Quentin. I just don't think so. So he's going to have, I don't even think they have pizza, tell you the truth. Um, Maybe his boyfriend will get him some. Listen to ear hustle and see if you hear anything about pizza on there. The prosecution brought all these things about, you know, that he wanted his freedom and that he wanted to be with Amber and get rid of his wife and all of this stuff. I really think they should have brought in some of the the psychological stuff about the fact that he had no inner core. He was a sociopath. Mm -hmm. He didn't care about it. He didn't connect to people in any real way ever. And I, I kind of wonder the same thing about his mother because there's a this whole, um, again, it was something that was recorded when he told her that the police were looking at him as a suspect and that he had heard that they wanted to go for the death penalty. His lawyer was telling him, hey, we're going to have to do this to keep you from getting, from executed. going to, yeah, going, getting executed. And his mother was like, oh, oh, wow. Oh, gosh. Oh, golly. And What? You're, you know, your kid calls you and says, oh, my God, they're trying to execute me. You'll be like, I mean, I think a few expletives would come out at least. 
Mm-hmm. You know, are crying. Oh my God, what can we do? Oh my God, are you? I mean, faint. Something. That's the worst thing you could ever hear. She's like, Oh gosh, oh golly, oh wow. You know, I mean, swear, almost no emotion. It's so weird. And I'm like, now I get it. Now I get it. And you know what? It's so yeah. sad because nobody can really understand that when you're not like Lacey could not have understood that. She could not have known that he could be somebody that was so dangerous. There's yeah. no way she could have known that. Nobody, because nobody oh, is wired that like way. That. No. It isn't as, nobody can understand. I mean, if you're not a sociopath, you can't understand it. Even her family was on his side for, until the Amber thing. Yeah, because, and it wasn't because he had an affair. This is no. what I want people to get because, oh, he had an affair. Somebody thinks he's guilty. No, because he lied so easily yep. uh, to both sides all the time. And even if you're a liar, even if you're a cheater, even if you're the worst, you know, cheater in the world, your wife goes missing and you drop everything. They asked him in that interrogation, is everything going good in your marriage? That at least couldn't even prompt you to say, oh my God, I got to tell you the truth. I'm having an affair with this woman. I don't know. Do you think maybe she's did something or had somebody do something to my wife because she found out? I don't know. Here's her name. Here's her number. Here's her address. Yeah. You need to talk to her now. That's a normal thing to do, even if you are an ass as a husband, you know? Oh my God, I didn't think about that. What if she got angry, found out and sent her brother over here to kidnap my wife or kill my wife? You know, you don't know. That would have been the smarter way to go. Yeah. That's why they turned and said, oh my God, because then they realized we don't know him. We don't know him at all. Everything we thought we knew about him was a lie. So now we have to really take into account that he could have done this and probably did. Yeah. And that's why it changed. Not because, oh God, he was having an affair. Because she even said, just tell us where she is and go do whatever you want. Just disappear. Go with your girlfriend. I don't care. Just tell me where my daughter is. Yeah. Yeah. And he couldn't even do that. So, yeah, pretty crazy. But I think that really says a lot. You can get caught up in all the details. You can get caught up in all the, the, we did the timelines all. and all of this <laughs> stuff. But you come down to, is the person capable of this? When you look at the back and you look at what, how they behave and you look at their demeanor and you look at their actions and you say, yeah, because it was no skin off his back when he was caught cheating before when he was caught lying, nothing, no reaction. And why he went to murder could have been just a perfect storm. He was turning 30. He didn't have what he wanted. The baby was going to be born any minute. It was becoming more and more real. Mm -hmm. And he just, that felt that was his way out, which Uh, was ridiculous. For whatever reason, I I think the baby was the major key in, in everything because it was the only thing that was different. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, all he's done this before, but there was never a baby coming. Because even financially, he could have gotten bailed out of that. His parents would have That's what done I thought anything. too. Yeah, he could have he could have gotten bailed out. He could have tell his father, "Hey, can you start me up in a business? Can we do something? You know, I I need to make more money for this family or whatever." Well, not only that, but Lacey had just come into $100,000 worth of of jewelry. He yeah. could have stolen the jewelry and sold it. <laughs> seriously yeah why not he's done everything else like that why not yeah that's you know and here was the other thing she had come into an inheritance 
from her grandparents' estate of the house that was sold. But she was going to get that in three more years. So they would have just had to hold out for a few years. Yeah, they could have bought a bigger house. They could have paid off their bills, whatever. Sad, very, very sad. They filed an appeal in 2012. They cited things like the jury wasn't, um, they weren't impartial because we got rid of people off the jury who said they were opposed to the death penalty. But then they did show that there was 1,250 jurors were summoned and 300 were brought in for voir dire and 78 were qualified. And also the defense had to, he had agreed to that, to that jury, and he did. They said some of the evidence should have been excluded, like the tracking dog, because they said it wasn't 100% accurate. There was made too many mistakes. But I read some of the accounts of this dog, Trimble. This dog was friggin' amazing. He was. Some of the stuff he did, I'm like, oh my God, how did he do that? I mean, he tracked some things that were... I would have never thought he could have done. So yeah, no, they, that that didn't fly. Oh, we have to just real quickly talk about the boat, the stability of the boat um, demonstration. They got a boat that they said was similar to the one that Scott had on the bay because they were asserting that you could not push somebody of um, Lacey's size and weight over the boat without it tipping over. So they got a boat, put it out on some, the bay. It seemed like it was a pretty choppy day. And we know in San Francisco Bay is very choppy. You know, it can be mm-hmm. very choppy. So they were out on this choppy water. They had this this dummy that was made up of sandbags um, that was supposed to weigh about 150 pounds, which they said Lacey was around at that point in her pre- pregnancy. And they had a man who was standing, kind of had his his foot on that middle um, part of the boat, like that that goes across, I forget what they call it. But anyway, so he's trying to lift this thing up while he's standing on this thing and throw this thing over. And the whole boat... <laughs> The whole boat tips over and he goes in the water. This guy almost drowned. This poor guy that they used, he almost freaking drowned. And they videotaped it, right? Then, you know, they tried to bring that in and the prosecution, of course, objected and said, first of all, we don't know the make or model of that boat that was used because they put, you know, how they have numbers or whatever, like identifying numbers on the side of the boat. They put tape over it for some reason, like, so you couldn't see what, whose boat it was or something. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. They, so they didn't know the make or the model of the boat. The seats in that boat were mounted on plywood, unlike um, Scott's boat, which they said raised the center of gravity in the boat. There were ropes attached to the boat during that during the demonstration, which of course there weren't any, anything attached to in Scott's boat. They said the man who was portraying Scott wore a weight belt, um, and they said they wa- they were trying to equal Scott's weight. Why don't they just get somebody who weighed what he weighed? Because a weight belt can make you, you know, it can make you move differently, right? There was a weighted object at the rear of the boat that wasn't identified, they said. They could see it in the video, but they didn't know what it was. The boat inexplicably was already sinking before they even started trying to lift up this dummy. You could see that in the video. And they said they have no idea why. And the, du- the dummy that was standing in for the body was made of sandbags. And the, as you know, sand becomes wet, it becomes heavy. So as the boat was already taking on water, it was already soaking this dummy and making it heavier. So there's like, that doesn't work. So there's all these things they said no. But they did say, look, okay, get his actual boat and we'll go out and do it again as long yeah. as we're there and we can watch the videotaping and then if it works, we'll bring it in. You they, they said no. They didn't want to do it. So prosecution just said no. But, I mean, defense said no. But the prosecution said what they did is they actually, because I guess they were asked, the jury members actually went out and to Scott's boat and got in and were able 
to get in it, to see if somebody could fit, that size of a person could fit. Then the defense tried to object because I guess some, a couple people got in the boat and tried to rock it. It wasn't on the water, it was on land. And they tried to rock it to see if it rocked or whatever. But anyway, so they allowed that. But so they're saying a 14 foot aluminum boat, which is used for fishing, the people go out on the bay and on, on lakes all the time. They're saying that two people can't be on the, in that boat because it'll tip over. It's made for more than one person. Mm-hmm. So they're like, no. Appeals judge said no. That that no, that doesn't fly. So all of these things that they asked for um as far as for the appeal were denied. And they said that the appeal they but they said the appeal didn't claim insufficient evidence of guilt, because that would be the main thing, saying, Well, you didn't have enough evidence to say he was guilty. They did not counter that in the appeal. So they thought that was interesting. Then there was a habeas corpus petition filed by the defense in 2015 that claimed that a juror had lied on her application and that neighbors saw Lacey alive after Scott left the house. In August 2017, just this summer, the state attorney general responded by stating that the appeal ignored, quote, overwhelming evidence that Scott Peterson murdered Lacey. The response also stated that the timeline of the crime was established by the neighbor who found the Peterson's golden retriever wandering in the street with its leash still attached before the sightings of Lacey and her dog. So they said, well, they're saying they saw Lacey at 1045, but we saw the dog at, no, no, the dog was back at her house at 1018. So that's neither here nor there. That's out. So the court now must respond to Scott Peterson's appeal by the end of 2017. If his appeal fails, he is scheduled to be executed by 2021, which we know in California means what? Nothing. Nothing. (laughs) He will die of old age on death row, basically. Which is fine with me. Yeah, which is good enough. There's so much in this case. I know there's some things that we didn't cover. We covered quite a bit. As a matter of fact, I think (laughs) way more. So tell people where they can find you and your podcast, Yolanda. You can find us at uh, notperfectorfunctional.com. You can find us uh, pretty much any place you can find podcasts. So iTunes, Stitcher, anywhere you get your pods. We are also on Twitter at not underscore pod or just Google not perfect or functional and you'll find us. That will do it for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. That will also wrap up 2017 for the podcast. I wish you all a wonderful Christmas, Festivus, or whatever you might be celebrating this week. To everyone, I wish you all a very happy and very safe New Year. I want to thank my sister Yolanda for being my co-host on this case. It was so much fun talking to you on the podcast, even though we probably talk true crime with each other almost every day. But it's always an interesting discussion. Check out the podcast she co-hosts with her husband, Mark. It's called Not Perfect or Functional, and they discuss some really interesting true crime cases, as well as pop culture, sports, and whatever is topical and interesting, with a touch of sarcasm. You can also follow them on Twitter at not underscore podcast, and you can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, be good to one another. I'm Mark. I'm Yolanda. We're not perfect or functional. The podcast. From our dysfunctional family to yours. We wish you a very Merry Christmas. And a Happy New Year. <laughs>